Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, next Tuesday marks the centenary of the beginning of the Civil War with the shelling of the four courts on June the 28th, 1922. The war was, I suppose, the last act in the revolutionary period that began with the 1916 Rising and ended with the birth of a new state. This civil war was short and brutal, lasting little more than a year but leaving wounds that persisted for decades. The conflict was marked last week with a major conference in UCC. One of the issues that was explored at that conference was the role of women at the time. This, as is well known, was largely ignored or suppressed until recent years, but is now the subject of considerable study. Joining me to discuss this is Dr Mary McAuliffe, who's a historian and director of Gender Studies in UCD. Mary is currently working on a major research project on gendered and sexual violence during the revolutionary period, which is expected to be published next year. I'm also joined by Dr. Hilary Dully, who's a documentary maker and writer and the editor of On Dangerous Ground, a memoir of the Irish Revolution by Mary Comerford. Both of you are very welcome and thanks very much for joining us. Mary, if I could start with you. The role of women in the revolutionary period, as we know, was suppressed in the Ireland that evolved and that to some extent has only been rectified in recent years. But in terms of the civil war, a number of women were prominent in the lead up to it, principally because I think they were very vocal in taking the Republican side. And to some extent, they were targeted because of their gender by some in the free state side. All six female TDs took the Valera side. Four of those had lost close male relatives in the conflict in the preceding year. So I suppose from that point of view, they were very prominent in the lead up to the civil war. Yes, uh, when the all debates happened on the treaty, all six women TDs spoke and all six took the anti-treaty side. They rejected the treaty. Um, the fact that four of them were related to um, uh, signatories of the proclamation who'd been executed or like Cato Callaghan, her uh, husband had been Lord Mayor of Limerick and he had been shot dead by the Black and Tans uh, is very interesting. And Mary McSweeney as well. And Mary McSweeney with Terence McSweeney, her brother. And they do refer to that, but I think we have to look at them more as political animals themselves. They had their own ideologies. And Mary McSweeney makes a very powerful and very lengthy speech in the Dáil. And actually, uh, her biographer, uh, there will be a biography out in the next year or two, uh, Leanne Lane talks about the fact that that lengthy speech probably led to the fact that the um, vote on the treaty wasn't taken until January. So, you know, had it been taken before Christmas, maybe the anti-treaty side might have gotten the votes, but it wasn't until after. Uh, But Mary McSweeney talks about herself as a Republican. She does reference Terence and his suffering, and she she sat with him as he died, slowly. And I mean, the trauma of that is extreme. Um, Kathleen O'Callaghan also talks about her own ideology. Mrs. Pierce does reference her sons, and you can't blame her. They were both executed in 1916. But the women had their own political stance. You have to remember that the, the um, uh, McSweeney and O'Callaghan and Clark are all, they're um, 
relatives are dead now for several years, and they have gone through a war of independence in which they have suffered hugely. Absolutely. Uh, Kathleen Clark was forever being raided by the Black and Tans. Countess Markovich was always on the run. And I mean, her health was so broken, she dies young within, within a few years of the free state being set up. Um, so they, they ideologically cannot accept the Articles of Agreement. They cannot accept the Oath of Allegiance. They question about the border. Uh, nothing in the treaty is anywhere near what the oath they took to the Republic. And that oath is what they stand by. by. And you can see it in Kathleen Clark's later life when she's a senator uh, in, in the uh, Free State um, Senate in the early decades. Again and again, she refers back to the 1916 proclamation. That that was the oath she took. That was the oath she was standing by. And many of the political women like that. But I think you also then have to look at Common Amon. Common Amon are the first organisation, militant Republican organisation, who meet to consider the treaty before the IRA do it, before Sinn Féin do it. And they meet in February and the majority vote against the treaty. And you must not forget as well, when that minority leaves Common Amon, they set up Common Assyrsha. So you do have that sister against sister um, idea going on into the civil war. These women had fought together, many of them through the suffrage movement, and then many on into militant republicanism, and now they're split. Now the majority are coming among a, a, a vocal and powerful minority, who are many of whom are actually uh, very connected with the leadership of both the National Army and the Free State Government, uh, are in common the Searsha. So you've set up now uh, the anti-treaty women who are, 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 are demeaned by the state and the common the Searsha women who, who actually add to that. But the common the Searsha women also get attacked by the irregulars and the Republicans. Um, and, and going forward, women on all sides will suffer from violence. One thing about that, Mary, coming to mind, and as you say, they're the first organisation to take the vote, would it have been appreciated outside the, the military circle, so to speak, the role the common man had played and therefore, consequently, that, that, that such um, weight would be given to their decision? Oh, absolutely. These men who were, you know, Mulcahy and the rest of them, who were setting up, the, including Collins as well, um, of course, he, he dies before the Civil War really bites into down the country. Um, uh, they knew what the women did. The women had been their comrades. The women had been the intelligence officers, the dispatch carriers. Collins had worked closely with many women uh, in order to uh, carry forward the, the uh, War of Independence. And I would argue, without coming on during the War of Independence, the guerrilla warfare that was fought and the way that it was fought could not have happened because they did everything uh, up to and except shooting guns at, at ambush sites. And, and indeed, some of them actually did have hold of guns. But they did everything else. They did absolutely everything else. And then they were most affected by the violence of the black and tan reprisals because they didn't go on the run for the most part. They were in the homes and the communities that were raided. Uh, and you have evidence of, of terrible hair cropping of coming among militants, of violence against them, some of it very sexual. Uh, during this period. So the men knew what their women comrades have done. And many of them spoke of it uh, at the time. And so they knew then when they took the part of the irregular Republican anti-treaty army, what they could do and what support they could give to them. And I think one thing that shows how they knew that is during the War of Independence, you have less than 100 women imprisoned, most of them for collecting without a license, fundraising without a license. 
In the War of Independence, you have 600 plus women imprisoned, many of them for more than six months, upwards of a 600. year. 600? Mm-hmm. And these are the ones we know about. There were others now, the pension files are showing that some women might have been arrested and taken to a local barracks and kept for a couple of days and then released. But the ones that were in the North Dublin Union and Kilmainham and Mountjoy, uh, hundreds of them. Uh, a, a boat of, of, of 30 Kerry women uh, sailed from uh, Blennerville, um, a cattle boat, around the country because they, they, it wasn't secure enough to take them by road to Dublin from Kerry. Um, and they were all put into Kilmainham jail, uh, you know. So all of these, this demonstrates that coming on going anti-treaty was very important. And unfortunately, it scared the living daylights out of a lot of the leadership in the Free State and, and in the National Army. And that would impact on women, anti-treaty women particularly. Very interesting. Yeah, Hillary, I was just looking at and, uh, one of the historians uh, that wrote in, in relatively immediate aftermath of conflict, PSO Hegarty, and he blamed the women in coming on to some extent, for the outbreak of the Civil War. And it's not funny, but it's so ludicrous. I, I just laughed when I saw this. He said he believes himself that, left himself, man is comparatively harmless, but that with women in political power, there would be no more peace. Ah, yeah, Mr. P.S. O'Hagerty. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a wonderful kind of example of that... I mean, the fact that he was able to write a book with such choice language in it about uh, the anti-treaty women um, and to actually say that he blamed them for the ferocity and the bitterness of the Civil War. And um, I, when I was talking about Maura this morning, I came across this great letter that she wrote many years later because she... This is Maura Comerford. This is Maura Comerford now. And he made reference to her in his book, The Victory of Sinn Féin, which he wrote in 1924. And he talks about meeting her after the treaty um, had been signed. Um, And her saying something like, oh, well, no more war anyway. And then he goes on to say, left to her own devices she would probably have given the treaty a chance. And she was outraged by this. Um, And she just felt that he had completely manipulated the facts, which was that she had met him, but the facts of what was in the treaty was not known at that time. Anyway, she waited a few decades and she became, um, well, Maura was as, you know, um, she was remained a very stalwart Republican. She kept her anti-treaty position throughout her life. But she also became somebody who wrote to newspapers and she used that forum, the letters, to the editors. And P.S. O'Hegarty, they had they were having some spat and she she kind of like had this very delightful put down of him after all those years. So his book, I think, was hugely significant because it began that whole vilification of these anti-treaty women. They were diehards. They were um, harpies, I think you mentioned, Mary, today. I mean, they, the language that was used against them, um, and it was really because, looking back on it, because it a- actually mattered so much. So the backlash had to be very strong to put them back in their boxes and in their places. And quite a lot of them did sort of go quiet um, and had to wait many, many decades to find their voice again. And historians like Mary and Margaret Ward and 
wonderful female historians have brought these stories back into the mainstream history. And that's where they belong, because it's not just these are women's stories, they're separate. This is the history and women are such an intrinsic part of it. And I wonder, Mary, just before going back to the Civil War, that thing about uh, O'Hegarty and the portrayal of women in, in that manner, was there anything in that that it was handy, it fed into the fact, because by then the whole idea of women being suppressed within society under the Catholic Church was effectively taking hold? And did that fit neatly into that that you retrospectively can blame them? Maybe that's where they should be anyway, kind of thing. Well, uh, as uh, as often said, uh, the Irish Revolution was won by the most conservative of revolutionaries. So W.T. Cosgrave, for example, saw women extremists as unmanageable and ungovernable, as as crazy, as bloodthirsty. Um, he gave he gives several speeches about the women, uh, and if you look at the military records, when, for example, the Kerry Command are writing back after March and April in Kerry, and things are quietening down after the massacres and all that. Uh, and um, uh, Paddy O'Daly writes that uh, everybody is quiet except for a few extremist women uh, who are still trying to rise up the population. So there is this idea that the women were a bit uncontrollable and they had to be controlled. And you have fulminations from the pulpit about these crazy women as well. But you have to remember the radicalism of the revolution was a passing moment. It was a passing yeah. moment for labour. It was a passing moment for gender or, or class or any of those the society in which radicalism could happen wasn't really there. The church did have its tentacles in education and healthcare and everything from that, and it only increases on into the free state. Um, so these radical women are outliers, really, in terms of, of what they are doing. And the fact then that they are involved in a pretty bitter civil war makes it even worse. So the, the plan is to, to quieten them imprison them and quieten them. Yeah, and as you say, the, the, the revolution was that moment, and I know, I know it's often going to the realm of speculation, we can't help it at times, but even if it had been as conservative a revolution or ended up with as conservative leaders, the nature of society, the nature of the power of the church, that yeah. role would probably have ended up that way anyway. It mightn't have been as bad as it became, yeah. it, uh, and it was absolutely, and I mean, when Fianna Fáil come into power in 1932, Hannah Shee Skeffington makes a very telling statement, and I'm paraphrasing here, but she said, you know, some of the women like Jenny Wise Power and a few of them had joined Fianna Fáil thinking, well, the Commonwealth government had been really bad for women, uh, maybe Fianna Fáil would be a bit better because they'd all been comrades. And she said when he comes to power in 32, don't expect anything, he's bourgeois and Catholic, and, and she was right. He ends up writing the 37 Constitution with the women in the home articles in them, which we still have to yeah. this day. So, I mean, there is a counter-revolution that includes a counter-revolution against any idea of gender equality, uh, which was written into, and that's why the women look back at the proclamation again, mm. not just the oath, but equal suffrage and equal citizenship is in that proclamation. And they hark back to that again and again and again, and they never get that. And it's, it's very much a disappointment and a betrayal um, and the bitterness of the Civil War is compounded by that state they find themselves living in, which sees women very much as, you know, if you want to be a true Irish woman, it's respectability, it is domesticity, it's marriage and motherhood. And definitely marriage first <laughs> yeah. before you become the mother, because anything else, then you had condemnation, institutionalization. And it's, it's pretty a pretty awful 
Well, it's no country for, for women, yeah. really, after that. And Hillary, just come back to the Civil War again and just some of the figures there. Mary Comerford, how was it for her, the Civil War? Well, the Civil War for Maura was very active. And um, I think that she, when she, during the War of Independence, I think she was very much like a lot of other women in that she um, did all the kind of work like um, dispatches and moving arms and safe houses. But when it came to the Civil War, I think they became much more active combatants. And um, she was certainly one of those. So she would have been um, a driver, uh, a mover of arms, but she was also somebody who moved around the country trying to keep the different units in communication with each other and keep them going. So she does talk about that, how, you know, I suppose soul crushing it was as time went on and she would go back and the units would have disappeared. Um, but she was, uh, she was fearless. I mean, she did extraordinary things. Like, you know, she walked over mountains with De Valera. She moved Liam Lynch around in a car and, um, the car was always breaking down, and so she would have to deal with free state soldiers all the time who would come to her assistance to help her. Um, so she was, I think, she, and she, and not alone she, there was many other women like her, but because she actually wrote about it, and she wrote her memoir, we can kind of um, get so much more understanding of what these people were doing on the ground. And so... They were active combatants, basically, really. And why more so in the Civil War, as you said, with her and probably a lot of women, than in the War of Independence? Well, I think during the, the, the War of Independence, they were a united citizen army. I mean, right. there was a, you know, a sense that everybody was working for the same goal. So I suppose in the Civil War, they were anti-treaty. More women were anti-treaty. And they had learned their war craft in the War of Independence. They knew how things worked. Um, and they were needed more. They were actually needed more as well. And so that kind of role that they had in the War of Independence, which was somewhat curtailed, um, I, I, I think that that... It, changed utterly in the Civil War because it was kind of all hands on deck, really. Yeah. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mary, and then just coming to some of the violence. And again, this was something that was suppressed hugely. And I heard you at the conference in UCC and you, you spoke about particularly how language was used, for instance. Outrages were referenced without the detail of the type of violence, very often sexual violence that was used. But even in issues like um, hair cropping and forcible hair cropping. Am I correct that, again, there was far more instances of that in the civil war than in the War of Independence. No, it's the other way around. Oh, it's the other way around, far, far sorry. far more evidence of it in the War of Independence. Although in the War of Independence. Um, but you still had it. You still had it in the Civil War, and I referenced um, one that happened after the Nocknagoshal bomb, where National Army, um, so f four or five of them were killed, 
and a local family of girls, one of whom was very active in the anti-treaty side and had carried a message that brought the national soldiers out of Castle Island to, to look for this supposed arms dump and, and the mine had been set to basically catch them and kill them. Um, that family were attacked and all four girls were hair cropped. Um, and then, uh, but what you find is not so much that it is brutal, physical, uh, and sometimes sexualized assaults by the National Army on anti-treaty women because they regarded them as harpies, as diehards, as um, one one guy, Joseph Ruddy, uh, who assaulted a woman in Mayo she, in Westport, she, he said they were, you know, shelved and disappointed Republican dames. So it's like a sense that they're carrying out this fight because they couldn't get what they wanted. And so they just won't stop and we have to stop them. And you see awful, um, awful uh, gang rapes, uh, quite a number of them. Now, they're, from, from the research, sexual assault of that nature of gang rapes isn't as bad and as, as bad. I mean, it's hard to quantify mm. what do we mean by bad as, as other civil wars or civil conflicts like the Finnish war that went on at the time or the later Spanish civil war. But the brutal assaults, daily assaults on raids and reprisals on homes and women would be taken out and put up against a wall and a gun shoved up against their head or they would be beaten up really, really badly, kicked, um, uh, offensive and verb, uh, abuse used against them, uh, verbal abuse used against them. And they write about this in their uh, military pension application files, which have been a boon to understanding the experiences uh, outside of the, the leadership of men and women, but particularly in my case, because I'm researching the women, of their experiences during this very short but nasty and brutal civil war. And uh, I think that really complicates this narrative that it was a clean, that both, the, the, particularly the War of Independence, but in, in some ways the Civil War was a clean war for women. You know, they, they did their bit, they contributed. Okay, they, some of them were brutalized, a few by the Black and Tans. War is never clean, no matter what. And, uh, you know, you can quantify it in terms of how many were killed. It's not how many were killed that I think we have to look at in terms of women's experiences, particularly traumatic experiences. It's how many were attacked yeah. in various ways. And, and we are finding more and more that an awful lot were. There's one case, are you familiar with the case of Eileen Biggs? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was in June 1922. And, and she died a relatively young woman. She did, yes. She was gang raped uh, on a raid in Tipperary. And that's a very interesting case, very traumatic case and very sad case. And uh, it has been written about by several uh, historians and scholars. And it is... Uh, uh, she, uh, compensation claim is put in, so we do know what happened uh, to um, the unfortunate Mrs. Biggs, and she never got over it. Uh, like a number of women, she never, she never got over it, nor did her family. Um, her sister was very traumatized by it as well, uh, and their their afterlives are very traumatized and sad after that because of the experience. But one interesting thing about that, um, among the men, it was. Um, who attacked Eileen Biggs and who attacked the house and then gang raped Eileen Biggs? It was a uh, irregular soldier who was later killed, and he is on a monument to Republican dead. Uh, I saw that. Yeah. In, in fact, he's mentioned two monuments. I two saw monuments somewhere. to yeah. the Republican dead. And I, I would question whether we should continue to allow somebody. I mean, they got off, but like they did do it. Uh, whether we should allow that to continue. 
It's a very you interesting know. point, Hillary, mm-hmm. isn't it? I mean, we've seen in different contexts about reevaluating kind of monuments, statues, etc., to people who, in retrospect, were responsible for horrendous things. But if you have somebody here, irrespective of what he did, uh, if he was responsible for that, and yet he's he's remembered in two separate monuments, one, as I understand it, for the War of Independence role he had, and the second for the Civil War, you'd have to wonder. Well, yeah, I mean, these questions about, I mean, these are very contemporary questions as well, aren't they? Because it, all over the place, you're kind of having these discussions about, well, like, who who are we remembering? Who are we putting up on pedestals? Literally, like, um, these questions are, are, are something that I think over the next period of time will probably come up more and more. Um, but the history of, of, of women in that period, um, and, uh, you know, I think that, it's really important that we understand that it, you know, the the work that has been done to try to make their contribution understood in the wider context is really important. And those questions about who is put on pedestals and who is, you know, forgotten about, um, it's the work that people put in, that historians put in, the research they put in coming sometimes from an ideological perspective, maybe from a gender perspective, that actually allows us to have a much richer history, a big tapestry of stories, um, and everybody's story is part of the big story. So we don't have people's stories, but well, that's in that section and that's in that section, but it's all one big history of the Civil War. And because it's so tied up in contemporary times, because it's so tied up in the ongoing situation in Northern Ireland and has been throughout the period. So history is always affected by contemporary times and contemporary debates. And I think those contemporary debates about who is elevated and who isn't is part of what we need to do. Very much so. Another thing that strikes me, Mary, is um, the nature of war and particularly nature of propaganda apart from base humanity, but in instances, and as you said, it was on both sides, on the irregulars and on the free state side, when violent crimes were committed against women, did it, did it spark any outrage, any, and putting this in base terms, any potential for propaganda pointing out the other side were actually have plumbed the depths that they've gone this far? Was there any of that, or was it literally, this is something we just don't go there kind of thing? It was, um, for example, the Biggs case is reported in the newspapers and we have the names of the perpetrators. They're in the newspapers. And At the time they were in the newspapers? Oh, yeah, 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 in the contemporary time, yeah. Um, so, like, we have the material, it's all there, and there was contemporary reporting. And, for example, during the War of Independence, when, um, you know, it wasn't it, there wasn't huge incidences of, of extreme sexual violence, but there was the atmosphere that it could happen at any time, and Meg Connery talks about that, that, you know, every woman knew that it was after the curfew hour that uh, attacks of a sexual nature could happen. And so fear was was heightened and and, tra- and and fear, that heightened fear leads to trauma as well because it's about emotion and, and all of that. But yes, there was propaganda use by um, actually the Republican women and, and uh, producing pamphlets about particularly the treatment of women in the prisons in Kilmainham and in Mountjoy. And, and like it's, they're totally overcrowded. Kilmainham had been reopened uh, to uh, facilitate the imprisonment of so many women. Uh, and the women's prison in Mountjoy is used. And then they're all moved to the North Dublin Union. None of them were actually places that were of any standard to keep that many women imprisoned. 
And during the movements from Kilmainham to the North Dublin Union and Mountjoy, there's extreme violence because the women resist because there's a number of their, their um, um, prisoners still on hunger strike, including Max Sweeney, when they are being moved from these prisons. And there's violence against them. Oh, yeah, the they were beaten downstairs. I mean, uh, Annie O'Farley, for example, her, her archive in the National Library has letters to her mother about what happened to them. Uh, when they were being moved from Mountjoy to the North Dublin Union, and they were thrown downstairs, she herself lost consciousness, uh, woke up semi-stripped and and covered in water and kicked and bruised and all that. And there's some implication of, of sexual harassment or sexual violence going on here as well. Interestingly, the Comanisirsha women are used to move them as well. And, and there's... Re- real bitterness between the women about this. And this is all in ERA, the Nation newspaper, which was uh, an anti-treaty newspaper produced for a propaganda effect. So yes, the violence against the women is being used and it's been talked about by the Republican women on tours in America. Um, and it is being used to show, I mean, the, the, the free state government is very aware of that. Uh, and particularly as the women on a hunger strike, I mean, they don't want Mary McSweeney to die yeah. on hunger strike after her brother, Terence McSweeney, had become the martyr that he was after dying on a hunger strike. So they have, they're have they really anxious about it and they just want rid of them. They just want them to stop what they're doing. So they get quite violent towards them politically, verbally and physically during this time. I think that's very interesting when you when you talk about the women and what they did. When Mary talks there, um, they, they, they had this great defiance. And, and I think it's like, again, a sort of thing that we, you can look at in contemporary times. They went on hunger strike. I mean, that's like extraordinary when you think about the male hunger strikers that we would know of so widely and even in later in the conflict. So they were really defiant, extraordinary women. And um, like Maura Comerford escaped from the North Dublin Union and she's a great passage in her memoir about, you know, looking and thinking, oh, um, almost like the Free State, they'd put up this barbed wire along poles. And she was almost thinking like, it's almost like, you know, it's there and you could go because she they hadn't actually worked out how to do it properly. So she climbs up the barbed wire and a number of people go after her um, and she actually escapes. And they're constantly like thinking about the next big thing that they can do. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're just like literally, as I would say, somebody who's outside of the whole general history area. Every time you think another extraordinary woman isn't going to turn up, they turn up and they have these amazing stories that are so much part of what we should know about. And then Maura Comfort would be an obvious example, but the disillusionment when everything dies down and the state is evolves as it has. Well, Maura never gave up the Republican fight, never. I mean, you know, she has a very extensive archive of about 30 boxes and you could chart the sort of backstory of Republicanism through those boxes because... Every single decade, she has correspondence with prisoners. She's involved in different debates within republicanism. She's writing about it. She's constantly looking back to the history and equating it to the to the present moment. She was a journalist, so she had a platform, and she was able to do all this. But like herself, and I mean Sheila Humphreys, I would know more about because they were 
best buddies and they but they were unrelenting unrepentant republicans till the day they died and so many of them were and so many were yeah, yeah. the other the other thing though mary the, the um that disillusionment, I mean, particularly, I suppose, on the Republican side, you had, you had all the women who coming out of prison and the after effects of that. You also would have a lot of widowed women there as well, on both sides, really. Oh, you did. Like, I mean, obviously, Ireland in the early 1920s is a country that's come out not just of a civil war, but a decade of mm. war and violence. Um, uh, First World War, rising, war of independence. So it is a very fractured, I would say, in many ways, traumatised society. Uh, and how are they going to deal with this? And particularly then you have a huge cohort of people who who reject the state that has come into being, who are very disappointed with what they have gained, haven't gone through all of this fear and bloodshed and, and violence and fighting. And what they get is this, a divided island, a free state that's still within uh, the Commonwealth and an oath of allegiance. Uh, and so they continue now, like comfort continues within republicanism, Others of them then put their energies into the fight for women workers, like Margaret Skinner. She, for example, who had been, she took over from Austin Stack when he was arrested in the Civil War and became the quartermaster general of the IR, of the irregular IRA uh, until she herself was arrested and handed that baton on to Nora Connolly, who was then arrested. So that's how important the women were. At one stage, two women, Margaret Skinner and then Nora Connolly, controlled all the money that the Republican IRA had access to and to distribute it around the country in order to get arms and ammunition and all that sort of thing. Um, she becomes a teacher. She, well, she had trained as a teacher, gets a job, joins the INTO, eventually becomes its president. Her entire career is about women workers. And at the end of it, she writes a letter to the newspaper where she signs herself by uh, um, Margaret Skinner, Irish Citizen Army, 1916, still that unrepentant Republican and socialist. And so many of them like that, Kathleen Lynn sets up St. Alton. So a lot of them go into social work, social care, teaching. Um, they're outside of that mainstream political hierarchy, but they're in that, that area where they're doing an awful lot for communities. Most of them join, a lot of them join Clan Republica when it's set up because it appeals to their sense both of socialism class politics, as well as gender politics, they never give up the fight, an awful lot of them. And we're talking about both the leadership and ordinary members in communities. And also, though, a lot of ordinary members, and again, I suppose really on both sides, I mean, for instance, I'm thinking of scenarios whereby a lot of them would, would be widowed and they might have large families. And then yeah. you have this scenario about the woman shouldn't be working outside the home and everything that's attached to that, purely from a day-to-day -day getting by it was tough for everyone, but it must have been particularly so for a lot of women who were left in that situation. Yeah, um, a very interesting documentary was on recently about the widows and um, of 1916, for example, and the poverty most of them found themselves in. You know, these were the widows of the signatories of the proclamation, um, quite a number of whom had been anti-treaty, and they're treated abysmally, as are many women uh, who later fought in the water of independence and civil war by the free state. There's no, you know... There's no social welfare for them. And so a lot of them live in extreme poverty. And when then they're allowed to apply for the pension, the military pension, most of them get grade E. And yeah. they're so, I mean, it does help because they're in such extreme poverty that it raises them up to not so bad poverty. 
but they rarely get higher than grade E. And they are, you see letter after letter after letter from these women saying, I did so much for the cause and this is all you're giving me, you know. And they are very disappointed. Everything about the Free State disappoints them, basically. I mean, the application process was very much... For the pension. Yeah, for the pension for the women. I mean, it was very much geared against them. Um, and they, they, they were, first of all, as you say, they could only get the two lower grades. So they could never apply for the higher military-grade pension. I would say less than 20 of them got a D. Well, Maura now yeah, did get a D. Yeah, yeah you but had to be a real senior participant to get that yeah and also like she she actually began in the 1940s when there was a um a chance to reapply for pensions she she started working with a lot of women to try and help them to make their cases because a, a lot of them found it very difficult to make their cases because they were relying on the corroboration of men who sometimes went to the other side and that might not be forthcoming but also what they did was not given the same kind of, you know, they, they weren't considered to be military, if you know what yeah. I mean. They were considered to be like, well, dispatch carrying and so on, but all had to be corroborated by, by men. And they had to be, you know, looked at and compared to what the men had got. So, so few of them, it was a soul-destroying process. And, you know, Maura's correspondence with women who... Um, were applying for these pensions, you can see what a soul-destroying process but it was. But even when the male referees supported the case, um, and like they would have female referees, so they're whoever had been the, the head of their local common or the local district, uh, but when they got referee letters from men who said she was the best girl, and they always used the term girl, in the district, and we couldn't have done this, that, or the other thing without her, even with that you know, uh, kind of, uh, referee from a uh, reference from a man, they still will only get the grade E because they were seen not as militants, mm. not as somebody who did, who carried the fight to the enemy, but as the backup crowd, mm. you know, you carried some dispatches. But, you know, even that phrase, carrying dispatches, they did it in all weathers. They went through blockades. They they had to, you know, go up straight to Black and Tans or, or RIC and blag their way through blockades and... Um, a lot of them faced violence because of that. And uh, they that was dismissed as just something, well, you know, that's what the girls did. They didn't really go, you know, shoot guns or go to the ambush sites. They made bombs, for goodness sake. And still that was dismissed as non-militant. So it was a very soul-destroying process, I think, for a lot of the women. And I suppose, finally, what comes out of it then is having had such an impact and having done so much, so many women, both those at the front line and, and, and in every other capacity, how the state evolved in what was a very cold house for women. You oh. think of mother and baby homes, Magdalene laundries, and that's only the sharpest edge. Um, there's a sense of tragedy about that. I think there is. And I mean, um, obviously women made their lives. They were living, uh, you find there was a lot of immigration. If you look at the lists of the common Amman um, branches, when the women are making up the lists, when they're eventually allowed to apply for the pensions, they'll be saying in, in the UK or in the USA. So that appears quite often. So quite a lot of immigration. But a lot of women went back into the home. They married, they had children. Um, there's a very interesting photo in about 1951 in Tralee, where there's a photo of these elderly women marching for women's rights, old coming them on. So they don't give up. Even if you think they're back in the home, they're still 
not giving up. They still have some hope. So it is a tragedy for them, but they get on with their lives and they don't give up. And that's the, their resilience is extraordinary, actually, because an awful lot of them must have been very traumatised by what happened to them. Hilary, there's, uh, there's the makings of a movie there, All Common Man and Women, 1950s Ireland. Um, there's a making a lot of movies. Like. <laughs> there is indeed. There <laughs> but is. there's certainly, um, I think uh, there's certainly a lot of um, individual stories, micro stories. I mean, the, the, the question really is how to choose which story to tell, because there are literally so many of them. Um, but I think as well, like the Ireland that developed... Um, was was something that came about because these women were to some degree um, defeated. I mean, and I think Maura would use that word. She she would call it a soul-crushing political and military defeat. Um, and that we shouldn't forget that, that that, like, there was a winning and a losing side in the Civil War. Um, and that the kind of Ireland that developed after that um, is is the Ireland of the people who were the winning side. Would it have been a different Ireland if the other side won? It's hard to tell. Very hard to history tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think there would Probably, be a war anyway, because, of course, <laughs> what they didn't want was the border. And they, yeah, they that was... That. So inevitable, violence was in many ways inevitable, but would have been a different Ireland. Yeah. The questions we'll never know yeah. the answers to. Uh, Mary McAuliffe, Hilary Dully, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, thank Mick. You. Thanks. That's it for today, folks. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon, and thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are like interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.